All right, so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 um, and Romans chapter 5. So uh, if you've been to church any amount of time, you know that we are in Romans. We've been in Romans for the last 10 weeks, and so, uh, but this week we're going to just kind of touch on it a little bit. So um, before we do that, I want to just cast some vision to you. I, you know, we're in a very exciting time in our church. Uh, we've been here at this location for uh, since February, and God has done so many things. We had our uh, staff Christmas party this past weekend, and I was just reminded of all that God's done. We've seen like 20 people come to faith in Christ since moving here in February. We've baptized 32 people since moving here. We've seen over, almost 100 people come through heart and soul since moving here. God is just moving in the church, and it has nothing to do with Connection Church drinking, but everything to do with His Spirit and what He's trying to do in the world. What I see is he's trying to move, he's moving in the hearts of his people, and that is so encouraging to me. I was able to, to pray with a, a, a guy this week in my connect group. My connect group, I told Savannah uh, recently, Savannah, Savannah's my wife, for those of you that don't know her, but uh, I, I went home after group and I said, I love my connect group. If you're in my connect group, you know it's awesome, right? It's, it's not because of me, it's because of what God's doing, right? But it's so cool to look to, I got guys in there that are just getting saved. There's guys in there that aren't saved yet. There's people in there that have been saved their whole life. And God's just working in these men's lives. And I'm seeing them come alive. And it's amazing. I love seeing it happen. And I was able to, to pray with one of them this week. And he received Christ. And, like, and for anybody that knew this guy, he was like, they were worried. They were praying. And God, God revealed himself to him. And he came to faith in Christ. And I'm reminded, I'm not saying that for any other reason. Other than, if you're in this room this morning and you're doubting the Lord, he is still working. And he's still moving in people's lives. And he's good. And our heart as a church is that it wouldn't just be about a pastor preaching or a connect group leaders leading, but it would be about a movement of Christians, i.e. you and us together as a body, being missional in our lives, sharing our faith, being able to articulate the gospel enough to lead someone to your Savior. And so this morning, as we're talking about this this morning, that's my heart for you and us as a church, is that we would learn and be equipped to be gospel bearers and be missional in our living. That we would come in here, yeah, we would be fired up in this room to hear a sermon and to worship, be encouraged, but then sent out. This would become a celebration about what all God's doing throughout the week. This wouldn't be a place where you're coming to get a shot in the arm. This would be a place where you're coming and bringing stories of God bringing salvation to people, right? That's the, that's the that, when I look at scripture, that's what I see the church gathering being as we gather together. And so that's my heart. And I, I could talk about that a whole other thing. But today we're going to go into week two of our Advent series. Uh, we're celebrating Advent. Uh, the series is called Heaven Came Down. And I, as I thought about that this week, as I was praying through this sermon, uh, the name of this series carries so much weight for us as we look at Advent because this is exactly what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? I, I mean, I've, I've, I've done Christmas now for 40 years and, uh, you know, it, I, it there's times where it kind of gets cumbersome sometimes as you get older, like the magic of Christmas kind of kind of goes away when you get older, and then it comes back when you have kids a little bit, and some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's fine. But think about God putting on flesh, coming down to rescue his people. And I want to read my favorite Christmas verses. This is in John chapter 1. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen. John chapter 1, my favorite Christmas verses. You're like, I don't understand. You will it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word here is Jesus, okay? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Let's get down to verse 14. The word, Jesus, the creator, the sustainer, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The actual, I'm going to try my best to, he, he pitched a tent in the world by putting on flesh. He came here for a moment to carry out a mission, and then he ascended into heaven. And I'm not sure, you may be sitting here, I've heard that verse before, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not sure we have a category in our minds this morning. And I pray, I prayed for you all week that we would just be amazed at the word because I don't think we have a category in our mind or even the language to properly describe the overwhelming reality of the incarnation of God in flesh. We, we try, right? We, we make manger scenes and we have beautiful Christmas plays and we do all these things. But as we build this anticipation towards Christmas, the coming of Jesus, my prayer is that we would remember that the Christmas story didn't begin with baby Jesus in a manger. The Christmas story began in the mind of God before he even created the world. Because he's a sovereign God. That's good. Christmas for me, man, I, if you know me, you know I love Christmas. I, it's been, always been full of anticipation. Probably for, probably for you too. Family gatherings, church gatherings, exchanging gifts, food. All the things that come with Christmas, right? It's a beautiful time. And this anticipation, that yearning in our hearts for this season, is not for the presence and the gatherings. And the t it's really, it's something inside of us that's longing for something more, and that's Jesus. And that's the advent of, of Jesus coming, and this anticipation is what we're celebrating. We're, last week, CJ defined advent for us. Advent literally means the arrival, the, uh, the, um, the start of an event, or the arrival of a person. And so as we celebrate Christmas and Advent this morning, that's my heart is that we would be a church that has an anticipation of, of not Christmas time with Christmas trees and all these things, but we're celebrating the coming of a person, right? And this is when we prepare our hearts. We prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Christ together as families. The, this is why we do family discipleship topics with Christmas trees and scratch-offs. And we do these things that we have these Advent books that we give our families because we want our families to celebrate this time together but with the right hearts and the right direction. This is a time of refocusing because it's also meant, this time is meant for us to refocus our hearts towards the second Advent of Jesus. Because I'm not sure if you know this or not, he came one time. He's coming back for his church. Because I think as Christians, we don't realize this sometimes. Some of y'all are like, there's this tension that we feel sometimes as Christians. It's like there's this tension of we live between these two proclamations of Christ has come and Christ will come again, right? We live between those two tensions. And it's like, we know Jesus has come. We know Satan tries to tempt us to disbelieve that sometimes. We try to think that God has given us this ability to understand that he has earned. So we live in this tension where Jesus has come. I put my trust in that. We believe that God put on flesh, like John 1 says, and dwelt among us. And because of his life, death, and resurrection, guess what? And his ascension, we look towards the future with confidence, believing that God will come again. But this time, it won't be a sweet little seven-pound baby Jesus. This time... It'll be Jesus with that cool King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattoo on his thigh. 
with a sword coming out of his mouth, ruling and reigning victorious. It'll be Jesus as he is. And I talked about this in our group this past week. We talked about Simeon last week. Remember we talked about Simeon a little bit in church and what Simeon's lifestyle was like because of his belief in God's promises. Remember that? And I was thinking about this. What does it mean if our lives aren't built on God's promises, right? It means well, one of the guys were like, just probably means you don't believe what you say you believe. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it means. But think about this. I believe a lot of people in the church, one day Christ is going to return. Maybe it's this generation. Maybe it's the next. I don't know. I think it's sooner than later. But I tell you this, I think there's a lot of people in the church today that are going, that's going to happen, and they're going to be surprised. I thought these were just stories. I didn't know this was really going to happen. But we're called to live with anticipation, look to the sky to see the return of Christ. Our heart is that we would be that type of church. CJ taught us last week, the first proclamation gives us a confident hope that the second one will happen soon. Because he fulfilled the first, we know he's going to fulfill the second. The life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, it shapes our hope in the return, the reign, and the renewal that is to come. Jesus, God said in Isaiah, God is making all things new. And this is the space that we're living in this morning. Jesus has come as our rescuer. And he will return as our conquering king to rule and to reign forever. And this morning, my prayer is that that would become very real to you and to me. Because I promise you, if that's real to you, your life looks very weird to the world. <laughs> right? If you believe in what we're saying this morning, your life looks different. And as we choose today, as we talk about peace today, there's a promise of peace that wherever we choose to believe that truth, that because of what God has done through Jesus, we can possess true biblical hope, peace, love, and joy, not as the world does, but as God defines it for us, which is perfect. And that's where we're going to be at today. And so as we look at this, we're going to look at um, Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be in Romans chapter 5 a little bit, but to kind of get our minds thinking about this for a second when it comes to peace. Does anybody have kids in the room? Like, I think about my children when I was starting to think about peace this week. And I was starting to think about my five-year-old twins, and I started thinking about that I never really understood earthly peace until I didn't have it anymore. <laughs> right? I never understood, like, what an uninterrupted un, uh, nap was like. I never understood what a peaceful dinner with my wife was like. You know, I never understood what a, I, I'm not sure if I had a complete conversation yet with Savannah since I've had the kids. We've always had to put a pin in our conversations, right? I'm not sure. Like my five-year-olds, they fight about the dumbest things, right? My, my son will be yelling from the back seat. She won't stop looking at me. I'm like, bro, come on now. Like, you know, he's pointing his finger at me or he said red's not my favorite color. I'm like, bro, come on, like for so you talk about some family discipleship, it runs deep in my family, right? Because we need it. So if you are a sibling, anybody have brothers and sisters in this room? You remember back in the day when you were little, right? I can tell you some stories about my brother. I almost killed him two or three times on accident once. Um, and if you agree, if you grew up with siblings, what happens, I think, in your home? You have this, there's this innate, natural, competitive rivalry that happens in your house. I don't care if you're a boy or a girl, right? You're going to have this rivalry that happens, Right? Um, sometimes it's a little more passive than others, but in my house it was a level 10. 
And so as, as parents, if you're a parent in the room, like I just asked, like, we go through some of these patterns a lot. You know, I can't wait till they're born. I can't wait till they're here. I can't wait to have my baby. I can't wait to hold her or him. Uh, I can't wait till they feed themselves. I'm tired of holding the bottle. I can't wait. I can't wait until they can crawl. I, gotta, I don't want to hold them anymore. I can't wait until they can walk and then we can actually go places again, right? I can't wait until they can talk because I don't know why you're crying. Are you with me on this? Yeah, and so I, I, then, then it gets to another little stage. I can't wait till they go to bed. Or I can't wait until they go to school so I can have five minutes of peace in my day. Right? Some of you are all like, you're a terrible parent, Michael. <laughs> but if you're being real, you'd be, you know, y'all think the same thing. I'm doing Some of you guys that have older kids, I can't wait until you drive so that you can drive yourself and your sister or your brother where you need to go because I'm tired of driving you places. I'm not your taxi, right? Some people says, there's some dads in here is I can't wait till they move out, right? There's some people that, and so, but the thing is, is like, I can't wait till they, I can't wait till they move out. But, and then we talk about peace today. We, we have to remember that we're talking about eternal supernatural peace. But this is a, such a great mental point to think about when we're thinking about peace in our life. We can look at a shadow of eternal peace by looking at earthly peace. And as we talk about this, I think it's important that we define peace. I'm a, I'm a little bit nerdy when it comes to definitions, but peace literally means, uh, and this is Webster's definition, is a, it's a state of tranquility or quiet. Some of you are like, I ain't never been there. How's that? Right? It says freedom from disturbances. And if you're like me, as I thought about peace this week, what I thought about, you probably think about peace as the absence of conflict, Right? The, the end of a war, the end of a fight, the end of parenthood, the end of things in your life that are kind of going out of, out of just into disarray. And so our culture defines peace by, this is what I've learned, the, our culture defines peace at what seems to be missing, right? But I think the Bible defines peace as the presence of something. And so as I thought about this, as I was thinking about peace, I was looking at, there's some, there's some old newspaper clippings I want to show you. This is kind of the, the peace um, that, that we see. And after Vietnam, there was a peace package that was signed. Did, did the peace last in anywhere in the world that has peace? There's, there's, more, there's more different. There was World War I and World War II. And there, can we just flip through them? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a peace with World War I and World War II. And there's peace in the Middle East. Anybody ever heard that name? Let's peace in the Middle East. Let's try to get that happening, right? And so we have these definitions of peace. Whatever you think about this for a moment, how long did these peace accords and peace treaties last? There's no lasting peace in this world. The world is always on the edge of war. You and your family are always on the edge of strife. If you haven't had conflict, conflict's coming. Because why? Sin. And what I want to tell you this morning is that the biblical definition of peace is different than the worldly definition of peace. And I know you know that, but the, the type of peace that it, in the Bible is not about the absence of something, but about the presence of someone. The, the Old Testament word for peace is shalom. You're like, I knew that. That's, that's good that you knew that. But do you know what it means? Because when I dug into what shalom means, it woke me up a little bit. It, it literally means wholeness or completeness. Listen to this. Things as they should be. Let that sink into your heart for a second this morning. Peace, true biblical peace, is things as they should 
be. Anybody got anything in their life that's out of place this morning? Just one? All right. A little insecure right now. I've got a lot of things in my life that are out of place. And I know you do too. The peace that God offers us this morning is about bringing wholeness to your life. Completeness to your life. And I think some of the holes and the cracks we fall into in the church is God wants to save you. Ultimately, in the end, you'll be in heaven. Ultimate peace, right? Fullness of peace. And I think there's an equipping that happens once you get saved. But I think there's a healing and equipping and a fullness in Christ that we miss in the church sometimes that brings peace. And I want to tell you this morning, this type of peace has less to do with our circumstances and more to do with the sovereignty of God. The word shalom, it points to the presence of God and the flourishing that happens in a right relationship with God. And what that looks like, what this means is that wherever God's grace has overcome a person's heart, that relationship will bring wholeness to your soul, right? As well as your horizontal relationships. Because when I'm right with the Lord and there's wholeness in my heart, there's peace in my heart that no circumstance can then throw it in my life, my horizontal relationships are a little bit more unified. I'm a little less arrogant and a little less cocky, right? Tim Keller, probably the best uh, interpreter of scripture that I know of, uh, he says, peace with God can only be yours after the inner conflict of repentance. You ever been in a place in your life where God was just like wearing your butt out? You need to repent. You need to turn away from that sin and turn towards me, right? There's a drawing that happens. And I think as I was thinking through this, I understood that there can be no true lasting biblical peace in your life without first there being conflict and surrender. Some of you guys are so used to living in conflict that you're not sure what peace is because you've never experienced it because you haven't gone past what it looks like to live in surrender and peace. There can be no lasting biblical peace without conflict and surrender. And so this means that peace, the peace that every soul in this room this morning is searching for or may have found can only be received when you acknowledge and turn away from that self-serving disease that's eating your life and poisoning your hearts called sin. Until you are acknowledging that I am a sinner, I am falling short of the glory of God, and you turn from that and towards Christ, there can be no peace. To put it simply, God went to war with your sin. Guess what? He won. War is over. You're fighting a winning battle. It's, it's like a cheat code. It's great. And if we surrender and we submit to his authority, we can know shalom, completeness, wholeness, things as though they should be. Some of you guys, if we did a survey, who wants your life to be as it should be? Not perfect, but in Christ, full of biblical peace, who would like that? Everybody in this room would be like, me. I want that, right? And this is where we're going to find ourselves at in our main patches this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bible there, turn there. We're going to start off with the first verse, obviously, in verse 2 of this passage. Um, and it says this. I'll read it to you. It'll be on the big screen. Um, it says that the, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And so as we look at this, I, I want to kind of give some context here. Um, this darkness 
um, for, the, for the Israelites and for the people of Judah. Uh, the, the Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. There was conflict. There was bad kings. There was good kings. But this darkness was a very present reality for Israel here. There was, there was oppression, right? But God was using Isaiah here to give a very prophetic word to point to sin's effects on people's lives. If you've ever lived in sin in your life, which you all have, if you've ever been under the curse of sin in your life, which you all have, apart from Christ, that's where you're at this morning. You know what it means to live in darkness. There's people in this room right now that may have been living in darkness so long that you don't know what light feels like. And I pray this morning that the light would shine on your heart as we read through this scripture. But Isaiah was giving a very present prophetic word of sin's effect on people and the role that Jesus would one day play. Because this is, a, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. From Genesis to Isaiah 9, there was a prophecy of the coming Messiah that would come through the line of David that we saw from Genesis 3.15, from where man sinned. Six verses later, God brings in the gospel, and we see it played out all throughout the Old Testament. And then we see this beautiful moment in Isaiah chapter 9. So at this point, Israel was sort of circling the drain of the toilet here in, in, from, in a morality sense. They were going down the tube. If you know anything about the Bible, that's kind of a pattern for Israel. If you know anything about your life, it's a pattern for you too, and me too, because we, we, we struggle with sin, right? And so I think about this, uh, Uzziah was a great king, right? He, Israel had been prosperous, he had invented new weapons to defend Israel, uh, the economy was booming. Uh, you probably know King Uzziah from Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Right? We see the picture of angels and who shall I send? Send me, Lord. Right? That whole context. But Uzziah had an incredibly faithful walk with the Lord until the end of his life where he kind of went off the rails a little bit. He kind of screwed things up in the end, which kind of speaks to finishing well. We need to finish well as Christians, right? But the guy who takes Uzziah's place is a guy named King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a complete moron. You can read about his life in 2 Kings chapter 16. It's, I'm like, is this, how could you be this ignorant? You've seen God move in so many ways in Israel. But he tears down all of Israel's kind of right worship with God, right? The, the, the temple and all the things. Uh, morality goes down the tube even further. Uh, Ahaz, basically what he does is, the, remember I told you it was the king of Israel, the king of Judah, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So the king of Israel was coming to take over the kingdom again and make one great nation again. And so Ahaz was like, oh no. And so he, he goes off into a pagan country, Assyria, and tries to bribe the king of Assyria to come to take over Judah so that they can have some protection from Israel. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And so what he does is he steals money from the temple, God. He steals money from the national treasury to pay the king of Assyria. And so what happens is to attract the king of Assyria, he gets the priest to build false pagan gods that the Assyrians worship, and so now he's worshiping false idols and causing all of Israel to worship false idols. And so he's begging the king of Assyria, a foreign nation, a pagan nation with pagan gods, to come inhabit Judah so that he can save his own skin. So basically we can sum that up with sin. Okay? Sin. And so Assyria, they invade Judah in 733 AD, and they begin deporting people and occupying their lands. 
Great idea, Ahaz. Right? And it's under this oppression and struggle that Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So you see there's a very real darkness here, but this is also pointing to Jesus and our struggle with sin. And so let's read the whole seven, two through seven here. I want to just read this and we'll dissect it a little bit. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. If you want to circle that and put Jesus right there, that's kind of the prophecy of Jesus. Um, a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as those when dividing the spoils. So think about this, this reality. Whenever you don't, Maybe there's no farmers in this room, but whenever harvest time came, that was a joyous celebration. Whenever you won a battle and you were dividing the spoils that you won in battle, that was a joyous time. You think about there was nothing bad happening in that moment. You were at the top of the top. And so there's this, there's this feeling of peace, no threats. You've been provided for, right? It's verse 4. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of war and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he's talking about a time of peace. No more war. No more need. No more want. For a child is born to us, for us. A son will be given to us. So for us and to us. And he says, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus. This is where it gets good. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. From now on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So on this side of this passage in Rinkin in 2023, we can clearly understand this passage as prophecy about Jesus, the one who would take away the sins of the world and bring peace and love and, and hope and joy, right? We can get this now, but in that moment, I'm like, Isaiah, what are you talking about? There's, there, none of this is true right now. But what did this mean for Isaiah? What does it mean, and what can it mean for us? Well, this is what it means. No matter the circumstances that you may be facing this morning, there is a God who has not given up an inch of his authority in your life. I don't care how bad it is. You're like, Michael, you don't know my life. I don't care. God has not given an inch of his authority in your life. No matter what it is, Romans 8, 28, 29 is still true. Right? And he's available to you this morning to be the wonderful counselor the everlasting Father, the mighty God, and the Prince of Peace. He's available for you in that way this morning. So what does any of this have to do with peace? I'm glad you asked. So verse 7, let's read that again. So he's talking about a kingdom here, right? A kingdom. He says the dominion will be vast. The, the, the kingdom will be vast. And its prosperity will never end. So to a a country who is under oppression by a foreign nation worshiping pagan gods. This sounds really good. To have a kingdom that has a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace as the ruler, whose rule will never end. That's a good king. Whose dominion will be vast. That's a prosperous kingdom. I want to live in that kingdom. 
He's pointing to a spiritual kingdom that we live in now as the church. Let's listen to this. It's so good. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness for now and forever. Who wants to live in a country, a kingdom, that's based on justice and righteousness? We all do, right? The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So the first thing that we see is at the coming of the Messiah, Advent, we know this is Jesus, right? Isaiah is describing the rule of Jesus as a limitless, limitlessly expanding kingdom. You're like, wait a minute, what? Like, it's, he says it's vast. He says it will never end. He said now and forever. And so as of the year 2023, there are roughly 2.6 billion Christians worldwide who says Jesus is Lord. That's a pretty massive empire, right? By, 20, by 2050, it's expected to be 3.3 billion people that claim the name of Jesus. And I, I'm begging you this morning, the people that are cynics in the room, on one side of this, it's like, I bet half of those aren't even Christians. Right, I'm, on, I'm in that side. I had to repent of that this week. And on the other side of that, I want you to not give in to the propaganda that Christianity is declining. Because our culture tells us that. And don't get it wrong, the West, our country included in that, is shrinking because we've gotten cocky and lazy in the church, kind of like King Ahaz. We begin to worship false idols. We begin to worship gender. We begin to worship our identity over God's identity of who he says we are, right? We're beginning to, we're becoming these things that we were never meant to be. But in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in India, in Nepal, God's kingdom is exploding. If you don't believe me, come to Thailand this year. You'll be like, well, all I did was to say Jesus and you shouldn't believe it. And they said, okay. Like it's, it's, the fields are ripe with harvest. And I want to tell you this morning, don't be found in that arrogant, cocky number. Come to Christ this morning and submit to his lordship. But the next thing we get about peace from these words of Isaiah, it says, he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And a lot of you guys were like me, like, well, what? King David, I thought he was dead at this point. I don't, I don't understand what this is saying. Like what? And if you're not careful, you can look past this as no big deal. You're like, oh, I remember David, he killed Goliath, right? He, uh, he's the slayer of lions. He, I like David. David was cool whenever we did the flannel graph things. It was awesome. He's my favorite. Um, but Isaiah isn't talking about David here. He's tying Jesus to the covenant promises of God. Please hear, I, I, I want to slow down here. He's bringing Jesus as a fulfillment of God's prophecies and covenants, right? All the way back to creation. So when he says Christ will sit on the throne of David, he's tying the coming of Jesus to the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Scripture. I know they're like, oh, whatever. Let me say that one more time. Isaiah is tying Jesus to all 400 prophecies that were made about Jesus and all 8,000 promises that were made to you about him. They've all been fulfilled. Last week, CJ brought in the verse, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for every one of God's promise is yes in him. Isaiah is pointing here specifically to the Davidic covenant, right? Um, 
It was an unconditional promise of an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. And for us, this may not resonate because we're used to having people in power that we vote for and don't like very much. Right? So we get to this place, whether you uh, vote, vote this way or vote this way, you know, in the church, we come together under the kingship of Jesus. But in Isaiah's day, if, you're a, if you had a good king, he was righteous and just, things went well. But if you had a bad king, things went really bad, and he would invite foreign invaders to come take over your home. It gets bad, right? But what Isaiah is saying, there is a perfect king that is coming who will never step down from his throne, who will never relinquish one bit of his authority in your life or on this earth or in the heavens. And he will never, ever let go of that authority. He will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And that's the one we point to. Anybody ever done any Bible study and you get to the point, maybe numbers, first part of Matthew, begot, 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 beget, begot, beget? You better... How many, let's be real, be honest, this is an honest place. Anybody ever skip those places? About four of us. Hey, listen, it's fine. It's fine. Those of you that don't want to admit to it, it's fine. Listen, but those begats and begotten, those things, it's important that you read those things because of what it's doing, the monotony of, it's showing God's sovereignty and carrying out his plans and promises throughout the generations. And what you see here. These things are showing us that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. That's what the begats are all about. So next time you are tempted to skip over them, remember these are promises that through the hundreds of thousands of years, God's promises never fail, and God is sovereign over every family and every man and every woman that he used to fulfill his promises. Isn't that amazing? If you think about this for a second, and Jesus coming as a baby to live and to die for you is the fulfillment of God doing what he said he would do. Don't miss this. Because you can miss it by going to Kroger and going to the movies and going on dates and going to work and kind of going through life, taking your kids to the doctor, taking your kids here and there and everywhere. You get so worn down because the enemy wants to keep you busy so you can't stay in the spirit to understand who you are in Christ. What God has done has brought you here to this point in your life to make you alive in Christ so you can be effective for Christ. And I want to tell you, I'm, I'm saying all this to talk about peace. If you want peace, then root yourself in the fact that God has done exactly what he said he would do. That's good. If you think about this, this is so good because what he did who did he swear upon? Whenever he gave you the Davidic covenant, he swore upon who? Himself. That's pretty good. Jesus is the substance of all of God's promises. And guess what? Your life right now may be crazy. Your life may be going down the tube. You may have screwed it up big time this week. You may have done the worst of the worst. You may have had a fight with your wife or your husband. You may have spent all your money. You may, you may have been given a, a diagnosis of, of cancer. It may be anything. God has victory in Christ because his promises are yes and amen is what we see in 2 Corinthians. Because when it looks like defeat, it's actually victory in Christ. Like, your life may be going crazy, but guess who's not panicking? God, I don't care what you're going through. Oh my gosh, I got cancer. God's like, I, I knew, I know. And I, I'm, I'm sufficient for you in that too. 
so many times we try to take back the control. And when things get under control, okay, God, you can have control back. When it looks like defeat, it's victory in Christ. Look at the cross. Anybody want to go to the cross today? And while you're on there, you're probably going to be like, why is this happening to me? This is not the life I thought I was supposed to be living. God had a plan. God defeated the demons and Satan. He defeated sin and death. Satan thought he won. Spoiler alert. He didn't. So what does this mean for us, right? <clears throat> I got two simple points. You're like, this is not very deep. I don't care. It's, it's Bible. Number one, what this means for us is we have access to life-altering peace. What I'm saying by that is if you read this Bible and you come to faith in Christ and it hasn't altered your life, you haven't put your faith in Christ. Try to be as blunt as possible. You have your faith in a religion maybe, but it's not in Christ if it hasn't altered your life. Right now, what I'm saying, right now, in this moment at 10.08 on Sunday, it is possible to possess perfect peace even while living in an imperfect world. Yeah, a perfect peace in an imperfect world. Because our peace isn't based on anything this world has to offer. Romans 5, if you have your finger there, or marker there, we're going to read it together. First five verses. We just read this two or three weeks ago. But it says this, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by all the work we've been doing for God, no, it says by faith, by putting our faith in Christ, since we've been declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance pr produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. <coughs> it's not justification, not hope and affliction, <coughs> not even the Holy Spirit. The first thing he mentions is peace with God. And I think it's interesting here because shalom means wholeness, completeness, things as though they should be. I, I pray God would open our minds here. This is what God has accomplished in Jesus. This is what makes the church different in the world. This is what makes people on the outside look inside and be like, what's going on, man? These people aren't dealing with the same stuff I'm dealing with because they got a different power at work in them. But the thing is, we've given over ourselves like Ahaz to religion instead of Jesus. Have you experienced freedom this morning? Because I want to tell you something, peace produces freedom. Remember what Paul said? What Paul is talking about here, it's not a feeling of peace. Who knows we live in a feelings-based culture? If I feel like it, I should do it. Anybody ever lived on that? That neighborhood before? It's not a feeling of peace. This is a reality of peace. This is not changed by who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you feel it one day and you don't feel the peace the next day. It doesn't matter. This peace has been given to you by God himself in Christ. And the reason I point this out is a lot of people, the reason why they come to church, maybe this is why you're here this morning, 
is to give you some therapeutic feeling of peace that you can endure life with. That's not the peace that God offers. It does that. But the peace that God offers you is a renewal of your entire life, your entire soul, your entire spirit, and brings you into a whole person and restores you back to who you were meant to be in Christ when God created you. Are you perfect? No, but you're moving that direction whenever God glorifies you in the end. There's a process of sanctification, right? But more important than this, more important than these feelings that we're looking for is whether you actually possess actual peace with God or a counterfeit peace that you've kind of produced in your religion, your pursuit of religion. The feelings you're chasing in life of being accepted, being loved, having peace, that feeling of wholeness that it can only be found in shalom, right, is found in Jesus. When things don't feel peaceful or look peaceful in my life, what do you do? You preach the gospel to yourself to remind yourself that what's true and what's not. Many of you already know this, but on Thanksgiving, my son had an accident. We were in the ICU. He had to get airlifted to the hospital. It was a rough, rough Thanksgiving. And a friend of mine in this church texted me and said, hey, I'm praying for you. Is there anything we can do? And I said something to him that had an effect on him, but when I said it to him, I didn't believe it until I believed it a little bit, but my flesh was in there too. I said, God has a plan even in this, and it's good. Did I believe that wholeheartedly when I sent that text? No, I didn't. But I, I knew God was faithful. I knew he hadn't let up his authority on, on his throne. I knew that he loved me. I knew he loved my son. I knew he loved my wife. And knew even if he passed away, he was still good. And he still had a plan. And that's hard to speak sometimes as someone who loves their family. But that's what you talk, that's the real stuff in life. And I want to tell you something this morning. Before Christ... You are at war with God. You have no peace with, without, without Christ. And if you, are, if, you are, if you are not in Christ today, you are still at war with God. You, you may not feel it because the enemy has desensitized you and numbed you with the culture around you, but here are the facts. The Bible says that every unbeliever is an enemy with God. You're hostile towards God. James 4.4, 4, we Mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is what? Hostility against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, i.e. no peace. And I would venture to say there may be non-believers in this room this morning that may say, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I don't, I don't have anything against God. You can, you can worship, that's your truth. You can worship God. But that's not the point. It doesn't matter if you don't have anything against God. God has something against you because of your sin. But he's made a way in Christ in sending Jesus, the advent of the Messiah, to come make a way for you to have peace with him. The Bible says the reason that we lack peace in our life is because of sin. And the problem we face sometimes in our culture is Satan has tempted you to have a desire to be saved from the results of our sin but not our sin. I could have begged God, take my son out of the hospital, make him better, make him feel better. But what if God was using that situation to do something in my heart and I missed out on that blessing? We are supposed to look at life different as Christians. In, in verse 1 in chapter 5, we see Paul is saying, as opposed to the wrath of God that we deserve, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Like what our sin destroyed, Jesus restored with peace. 
And even though we live in a sinful, imperfect world, a perfect and promise-keeping God has sent Jesus to restore peace with God for anyone who would put their faith in his promises. Peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness. Things as though they should be. There's people in this room right now that have a tornado going on in their heart. I know it for a fact because I've been where you're sitting. You're trying to do things in your own power. You're trying to take care of your own family. You're trying to pay the bills. You're trying to take care of a sick child. You're trying to take care of a husband or a wife. I know. But you're trying to do it in your own power and not doing it from the motivation of peace that God's given you through his son, Jesus. And this Christmas, as we celebrate peace, that's the motivation. And this is the last thing, the last point. It's the second point. You're like, where's the third one? We ain't got three today. The second point is biblical peace doesn't depend on you. It's so simple, right? But it's so true. There's nothing you can do in your own power to bring peace to your life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such things. So this morning as I talk to you about this, like we don't get peace with God by our deeds. I don't care how much you serve, I don't care how much you give or how much you've been in church, I don't care how much you love your husband or your wife, I don't care how much you, that's not how you get peace. Those are the results of eternal peace. We don't find it in tradition or baptism or church membership. Peace with God is by faith alone in Jesus. On his way to the cross, Jesus took his disciples aside in John 14, 27, and he said this. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. How many people know that Jesus' peace is a little bit different than mine and yours? A little bit different. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. What does he say? I don't give you as the world gives, right? Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. This morning, hear this. What Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is saying here is, I give peace and I sustain peace in your life apart from you, right? Apart from what you've done. And so what we see is what God has promised from the beginning of time has been fulfilled in Jesus. And when you are rooted in and trust in Jesus, we have unshakable peace. We possess it. Colossians 3 15, Paul goes into the church of Colossae and says, And let the peace of Christ, to which you are called as one body, rule in your hearts. What is that second word? Let. You know what that means? It means get out the way. It means get out the way of trying to control everything. Get out the way of trying to be the God and King of your life. Get out the way of trying to do things during your way to heaven. Get out the way of what God's trying to do in the world and in your life. This means we have a choice in your life. Trust God in his promises by letting peace reign and rule or to rely on our own selves and reject the peace that he offers. Because anytime you depend on yourself, you reject peace. It's either all in or all out. Because guess what? If you don't do this, I'm going to go ahead and venture to assume some things this morning. You don't have a good track record for creating peace in your life. Right? 
I don't. Left to your own devices, guess what you create? Chaos. Anybody created chaos in their life before? It's not lasting peace. The peace God gives us in Christ is not dependent on our faithfulness or our goodness or our ability to follow him as we should. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness to keep his promises, right? Remember Romans 5 we just read? Let's do a survey. What qualities or attributes of your newfound peace with God did you obtain by white-knuckling your faith to ensure you keep the peace? I promise you, you're going to make a big old fat zero on that test. This season of life may be hard. You know, I, I've got to read my Bible more, pray more, do this and that. And then I receive peace that surpasses all understanding. No. Nothing. You didn't do anything. And if you didn't do anything to earn peace with God, what do you have to do to keep peace with God? Nothing. My son, my daughter that I just talked about, guess what? Nothing in this world can take my love away from them. My love's imperfect, but I, I'll never stop loving them. I don't care what happens. If they never come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving ever again, I'll still love them. It'll hurt, but I'll still love them. Nothing can take away the peace that God has given you through Christ. Think of it this way. The God of all creation created you to be perfect. Anybody perfect in this room? In your sin, you became an enemy of God because you were not perfect. You broke his laws. God's righteous judgment on that is death. You deserve death in your sin. Eternal separation from God. But guess what? God loved you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, to die in your place so that you could be forgiven and have peace with God. Think about this. Think about this for a second. If you could let the weight of being an enemy of God just sit with you for a moment, the proper emotion there is terror, fear. But the moment that you realize that because of your faith in Christ, the penalty of your sin has been paid in full, there would be relief and supernatural peace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not sure if I've ever experienced the peace of God in my life. I'm not sure. If I'm, I'm not sure. How can you gain that peace? Depend on someone greater than yourself. I've said it before, true peace with God and in the world is found in Christ and Christ alone. As I was thinking about peace this week and as I was preparing this message, there are three things that kind of stuck out to me as I was thinking about my own life, three consistent things that have always been true about peace in my life. When I haven't experienced peace, there were three times in my life that I remember. One is when I wasn't saved, when I was not a Christian. I was going to church and I was reading my Bible and I was going to the group and all these kind of things, but I wasn't saved because my life wasn't submitted to Christ. That's the first time I didn't feel peace. The second time is I was living in sin. I was worshiping the idol of self. I was doing the things that pleased me. I was, I was worshiping things that does not honor the Lord, but I was also going to church and worshiping God. I was trying to live in both worlds, but guess what? Can't do that. That's the second time I was not living in peace. The third time is I was outside of God's will. I was trying to do spiritual things with fleshly tactics. I was trying to do things of God in my own flesh. Those three things, I believe in this room, everybody falls. If, you've, if you're not experiencing peace this morning, you fall into one of those categories, I would say. Maybe this morning as we celebrate Advent, the, the coming of peace, that we would understand that Advent is God's counteroffensive to defeat sin. 
It's the story of how God made it right, how he's making it right, and how he'll one day make it finally right and forever. And so this morning, if you've never experienced peace, I pray that you would not leave this room until you have experienced peace. There's going to be some people on the walls. I'll be there. If it's just me, I'll be there. But there'll be some people that want to pray with you. All you got to do is say, hey, I don't even know what peace is. I need Jesus. Or I've been living in sin and I need to confess some things. All right, hey, I've been living outside of God's will. I'm not sure how to get back in track. No matter where you're at this morning, I promise you, the people in this room love you so much, nothing you say is going to surprise anybody. Because probably the person you're talking to has been in the same place you're at right now. So let's pray this morning. As I pray, when I get done praying, you're free to go, but just leave quietly. If you want to come to the altar and pray, come pray. Come get your heart in alignment with the Lord. If you need to repent, ask for forgiveness, come do that. But if you need to have some conversation, you need to be prayed over, I'd love to do that. And there's people around the room that would love to do that as well. So my heart for you is that you would respond and stop trying to do things, spiritual things for God by means of the flesh. If you need freedom, guess what? It's available. If you need salvation, guess what? It's available. If you need peace and hope, guess what? It's available this morning. All you have to do is repent, turn from your sin, submit to the Lord. And he promises you peace. So I want to pray for you. God, we love you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time we've got to share as a church. Father, I pray that you would just work in our hearts this morning in a very real way. God, that the people in this room that are just in a great place of relationship with you, God, that you would continue to pour into them. God, I pray for the person in this room that is far from you. God, that has just been trying to do things in their own power, trying to make things work in their own power, in their own way. God, I pray that you would just give them no peace right now, God, so that they would be driven to you. God, I pray that no person in this room would be separate from you, would be in alignment with you, Father, and would come to know you as their Savior. God, we pray for a a vast harvest in this city. God, many people would come to know you because of the faithfulness of these people. And I pray that you would do your work in this place to make that happen no matter what it takes. God, we worship you. We adore you. We thank you, Father, for your peace. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you made a way where there shouldn't have been a way. And we worship you for that, Lord. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. You guys have a great week.